what happens or what has happened, he's not actually giving a discourse. There's not actually a teaching per se, although obviously it's, it's uh, food for, for teaching and essential. Um, you'll note in the immediate context, if you look, chapter 3 is the baptism. Jesus is baptized by John. Matthew talks about that. And then at the end of chapter 4, we get to see the beginning of the ministry. He, Jesus withdraws to Galilee, um, and then it says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's where he's saying, okay, now he started to preach. Verse 18 is where we start gathering to the disciples. Um, walking by the sea, he calls Peter and Andrew, he calls James and John, and then chapter 5, again, we get into the Sermon of the Mount, which is one of the, the high marks of, of Jesus' teaching, and we're full-fledged into this is what Jesus said, this is what he did, and sort of the application, again, methodically working through. So that gives you the broader context, that gives you the more immediate context, and so here we are um, in chapter 4, and again, as I, as I mentioned, uh, we end chapter 3 with the baptism of Jesus, uh, which is really a, a sort of a high water mark, I mean, in, in many ways, you know. Jesus comes to John. John says, whoa, I, I can't baptize you. Jesus says, no, I'm going to do this to fulfill righteousness. Um, he, he's baptized, and as he comes up, we see this powerful picture of the Trinity, right? I mean, we hear the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. Jesus comes out of the water. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there. Um, Jesus says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, just sort of this, ah, you know, sort of moment. Um, and then we go into chapter 4, which is not so much of this glorious, resounding moment um, as, as we just saw. And yet he's led there. Um, and that's often the case, I think, on spiritual highs, mountaintop experiences. Sometimes they're followed very shortly by what might be considered a valley. And this is one whale of a valley. Um, but he's led by the Spirit. Let's just look at verse 1 and we'll work through uh, the verses uh, methodically here. Verse 1 again, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he's just been baptized. He has this glorious reunion with the Father and the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Um, and then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, I don't know if it how that strikes you, uh, but at first blush, it seems a little odd, or at least I think it can. Maybe it's not for you, and that's great, but the Spirit is leading him to be tempted, and not just tempted, but tempted by the devil, and he's leading him into the wilderness, um, and, and certainly there could be questions why, and I think that'll be addressed in the context, but for some, you know, there's the, there's the thought that God is tempting me. God is tempting him. God is testing him. And I just want to clarify that sort of early on. James sort of addresses this. If that's a thought in your head or has ever been a thought in your head, James answers that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. And again, that may be sort of a simple point and, and I think most of us have heard that and know that. Um, and yet here's the Spirit of God leading him out to be tempted. And, and maybe that's still sort of a source of confusion or maybe a little troubling. But I just want to sort of clarify early on, there's a huge difference. Um, if someone is tempting you, then obviously their intent is for you to fall. Is their intent is for you to succumb to the temptation. If you've got the, the aggressive salesman at your door whether he's selling vacuum cleaners or solar panels or whatever he is selling, he is tempting you. He is using every verbal trick, every means he can, and his goal is to get you to succumb and say, sure, you know, whatever it takes to get you off my porch, I'll write a check or whatever. Um, that's a temptation. The advertisers, they are enticing you, and I'm pretty sure if you asked them, their goal is not to get you to not buy their product. 
They're not saying, well, I really hope that you withstand and that you don't give in. No, they want you to buy as much or more than you can possibly afford. Um, They are tempting you in that sense. By contrast, the Father is allowing temptation, but He wants you to resist. His intent is that you resist. And so when it says God does not tempt anyone, it's true. Um, He allows temptation obviously, and, and we can talk about that. We could probably talk about that all night, uh, but I think that's a very critical distinction um, and something to bear in mind and to keep in mind. God doesn't tempt us. In fact, He wants us to prevail. Not only does He want us to prevail against temptation, but this is another famous verse that many of you probably have committed to memory, and if you haven't, it's worthwhile doing. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. And some versions say to bear up under it. Um, So not only does God not want you to fall, He wants you to be able to endure, but He's faithful. He doesn't give you more than you can withstand. And oh, by the way, He provides a way of escape. So again, there's a huge difference And I think that's where we reconcile the spirits leading him to be tempted by the devil, but he certainly is not tempting him uh, because he's provided and does provide for us a way of escape. So God doesn't tempt, know it and believe it. Um, But now back to our text. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So Jesus fasted. He fasted a long time, 40 days and 40 nights. And again, we've probably read over it, and maybe that just sort of, oh yeah, 40 days and 40 nights rolls into your mind. That is a long time to fast. I mean, if you, if you sit and think about it, I mean, you, you miss dinner and you get grumpy. I mean, you fast for a day or two and you're laid out on your bed. This is 40 days and 40 nights. Um, so no doubt he became hungry, and, and in this we see Jesus' humanity. I mean, as we know, as you all know, he's fully man, and so he's going to have the weakness of hunger and, and even attest to it. I did think it's interesting that it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit led him to fast or told him to fast, and so we don't really, it doesn't really give us the detail as to how this came about, the decision to fast, except It's apparent that he knew he was going to be tempted as the Spirit's leading him. Apparently he knew. And it seems that this is in preparation for this temptation. Um, That it is, in a sense, obedience, but also preparation to to withstand. Maybe he understands he's fully man, although yet without sin. Um, And he denies his flesh for this long spell, uh, seemingly in preparation. This is not prescriptive for us, and we'll talk about that more. Um, Although Jesus does assume that his disciples will will fast when he's gone, and he talks about that, and we could probably segue into a discussion and teaching on um, fasting, but we're not going to do that. I don't think that's the the point of this text, and we're not going to do that or have the time to do that here. But Jesus did prepare for this temptation, and part of that was this fast. and, it, and in that sense, it's, a, it's an example for us that we should be prepared, uh, whether that's fasting or some other means uh, at times, but uh, we should prepare too. Probably not a 40-day fast because that is extraordinary um, and, in fact, miraculous. I, uh, I think David Guzik had it this way in his commentary. Matthew points out both the barren desert, the Judean wilderness, was and is exactly that. It's a wilderness. And Jesus' severe physical condition after such a long fast. It is said that when hunger pains return after such a fast, he was hungry, as the Bible tells us, it indicates the subject is beginning to starve to death. So let that sink in a little bit. This is, this is not your, I'm fasting from sugar, I'm fasting from, you know, for a day or two. Uh, this is a pretty extreme, extraordinary fast. Now, I've heard, I I didn't look up any or read any for this, but I have heard, 
you know, that people have done it, but it's sort of under doctor supervision or they've done it with taking fluids or whatever. I don't know how all the details, but I know this would have been severe. And so then when Jesus is hungry, he is hungry. I mean, he is, he's been through it. Um, and so it puts the temptation, I think, even in more context. So again, this is not given for imitation. It's not calling us to go out and do a 40-day fast. I think that's clear. But look at what Jesus goes through and then also consider some of his later teachings maybe in that context in dealing with sin where he metaphorically says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Um, it sort of uh, portrays the seriousness and, and the necessity of confronting, um, confronting sin and, and engaging in the spiritual battle deliberately and, and even, you know, severely as necessary. We are temptable. So the temptation here. Um, Jesus is physically spent with hunger. He's starving. He's alone in the wilderness. And Satan comes himself and speaks um, how does he speak? It's not clear. Is it an audible voice? Is it a, a sense in Jesus' head? Um, it's not clear. And I think that that, in some ways, is helpful. Um, you know, I know comedians in the past have sort of, you know, had, had the line or routine about the devil made me do it. And, you know, everybody blames the devil and, and whatnot. Um, but whether it's an audible voice which I don't think any of us have heard, or just a thought in our head. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's sown lies and deception for years. So whether that voice is from a philosopher that you've read, or a book you've read, or a show you've watched, or from a literal demon. We know there are demons. Um, those temptations come. Those thoughts come. And, I, and I'm sort of thankful that it doesn't specifically say, and he heard the voice of Satan or whatever, because it does broaden the application for us to say, when those thoughts come, it doesn't matter how they come, you discern that it's the voice of the enemy and you resist it. Uh, again, whether that's something you learned as a child or heard recently or somebody else told you and passed it along, um, you resist it, you discern it, and you resist it, and that's what Jesus did. And I think another, sort of as another aside, uh, Jesus confronts the devil directly, specifically, but it's good to be reminded that the devil is finite. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful. Uh, most of us are probably not going to confront the devil directly, but Jesus did. Um, there may be, again, demons whispering or, or that sort of influence around, um, but thankfully Satan is limited, but Satan is here. And again, I think that sort of emphasizes the, the severity of this. Uh, it, it's not just a junior tempter. It's not just whatever. Here, Satan is there um, directly. Okay, end of the aside. Back to the text. Verse 4. So what does Jesus say? Again, most of us know it. We could probably recite it. Verse 4 says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here's Jesus in this place of hunger. It's a legitimate need. Hunger is a legitimate need. It's not that there was anything wrong with being hungry. And this temptation comes. And so what does he do? What, what does he do? He first discerns that it's Satan. And how do you do that? How do you know the true from the false, the true from the false voice? You study, study the truth, right? You talk about that in counterfeit, counterfeiters. I know Pastor Jim has said that before, to, to detect a counterfeit bill. You, you're intimately familiar with the true bill. You can tell by the feel and the print and, and so forth. And so we know that Jesus is just immersed in the truth, and how do we know that? Well, it comes out here in this temptation. But that's how he's able to discern the temptation, and that's how he's able to respond to it. Um, but again, to, to satisfy the need of hunger is not necessarily sin. And so that's interesting. So what is the temptation then? I mean, what is the issue here? Um, 
it's something that I, I sort of thought about. And in some ways, it's not immediately apparent. And I kind of thought, you know, we, we really need the Holy Spirit to help discern because sometimes things are not that apparent. I mean, it would have been easy to say, I'm hungry. I have a need. I put my time in. I've fasted. Yeah, what's wrong with turning the stones to bread? I have the power to do it. Uh, Satan comes and says, yeah, go ahead and do this. But in many ways, it's, appeal, it's an appeal to the lust of the flesh. That's not what God had for him, and Jesus knew that God did not have that for him, that his time had not yet come, his ministry had not yet come. And in many ways, it was to exalt the physical over the spiritual, and maybe even some pride in there. You know, hey, if you're this, why don't you go ahead and do it? But, but certainly uh, an exalting of the physical need over the spiritual need. Um, instead of trusting God to meet the need, you go ahead and do it. You go ahead and uh, sort of, a, I have a need and I deserve it, which can always lead us into sin. I think that attitude. And so Jesus displays a humility, really, uh, in resisting that. And he quotes scripture. And again, I'll put the reference that he quotes up there. This is Deuteronomy 8.3. This is the broader context. He quotes the latter part. But interesting, in the broader context, he says, He humbled you and let you be hungry. This is in Deuteronomy. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so that's what Jesus basically quotes. Man shall not live, excuse me, on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So this is the broader context. Interesting that it's dealing with hunger, since that's where he is. And again, you sort of see this humility. God humbled you. He let you be hungry. Why? To teach you that he might make you understand that he has the words of life, that the words of life really are more important, that he sort of establishes and, and displays this attitude of, you know what, if it's bread or it's this, I'm going with this. Um, that's powerful. It's life. We've talked about it again. You have the words of life. This is true life, eternal life. And in a sense, it's so much a place of surrender and humility that Jesus is displaying there. Um, and again, sometimes he makes us hungry. Sometimes he makes us go through things to help us to realize our priorities and what's important and teaches us by that, teaches us where our priorities should be. And obviously, Jesus had studied and memorized Deuteronomy. Here he is quoting it in the time of need. You know, you, you don't prepare for the battle when the battle is at hand. You prepare for the battle ahead of time. And Jesus at this point is got to be approximately 30 years because he's going to start his ministry. And um, so obviously we, know, we saw him when he was 12 and he's in the temple and, he, you know, and he's teaching in the temple. He's been through the Word. He's studied the Word. He's hidden the Word in his heart. And therefore he's prepared at this time and has the weapon ready to respond uh, when it comes. It's the attitude of supremacy of the Word which is essential. And it reminds me of... Job, of course, um, where Job said, I will esteem your word more than my necessary food. Um, Job 23.12, and uh, obviously the slide's not working, but thankfully I have it here. Um, <clears throat> slide, the next slide, Job 23.12 says, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. It's, it's the same sort of attitude. That is uh, our greatest need. Um, and we, we shouldn't compromise. We shouldn't put those needs of the flesh ahead of us. But second, Jesus doesn't deny his circumstances. He doesn't deny he's hungry. It's not like some name it, claim it type thing where he comes and says, well, I'm just not hungry. I'm just not hungry. Not, you know. No, he says, your word is supreme. Uh, God's word is supreme. God knows we need food, and Jesus is later going to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount, God knows you have need of these things, right? Food and clothing, but seek first the kingdom of God and His uh, will and all that, and, and He will add those things to you. And so here's Jesus sort of displaying that. Um, so don't seek food, seek His face, seek Him first. Back to the text. So we've made it through the first temptation. 
Again, sort of the lust of the flesh is, is what was covered there. Verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, quoting Scripture, Psalm 91, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here we go. Here's the second temptation. And again, interesting. Again, I'm just I'm fascinated by the, the details of it, but we don't really get to see the how or the why. But somehow the devil took him into the holy city, Jerusalem. How the devil took him, I don't know. Was it just a thought to go there? I don't know. But the, but the beautiful thing is, um, all right, we're back up. Pause for a second. So there's Job 23.12. See, I told you. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Okay, we're back on track. So it, we're not given the details. H- how did the devil take him up there? I mean, was there a physical appearance? I, I seem to doubt it. Um, how did he take him up there? And again, it just made me think sort of of God's providence and God's providence in our lives. How do we get anywhere? I mean, we've, we've all had those situations where we wind up somewhere and we end up meeting somebody. How did I get here? Boy, this is such, such a coincidence. Or, uh, you know, whether good providential or bad providential, it, it sort of points to God directing our steps. You know, we make our plans, God directs our steps. And I don't know how he got up there, I don't know how the devil took him up there, but he took him up there. And it may have been sort of a very natural thing. Jesus is wandering, and he gets a thought to go up here, and yet there was a spiritual component to it. And it sort of reminds me that sometimes when we think it's just ordinary, that we're just on the way, or we just have a a wild hair to go someplace or, or something, there could be a very spiritual component to it. And that may be look for an opportunity. Um, Royce talks about divine appointments. Look for a divine appointment, whether to share the gospel or something else. Or maybe we're being led into temptation and sort of to be spiritually minded in any of those situations. We're not just randomly going. Um, There are spiritual forces at work uh, leading us, and God is ultimately directing our steps. So again, I just thought that was interesting. Um. But again, we see Satan quote Scripture, and I know you've heard that taught before. Satan quotes Scripture, and, and it's true. And Satan probably knows a lot more verses than maybe many of us do. Uh, he's familiar with it. He's had lots and lots of years to pour through it and look for loopholes and look for ways to twist it and, and turn it. And so just because you hear Scripture doesn't mean that it's a biblical application or that it's a godly situation. Um, and you can hear that with Bible teachers or other. Oh, well, they quoted a scripture. Well, maybe. But interesting, even though he quoted a scripture, the application was not right. And it turned out to be a temptation. Um, and so, again, cause for discernment. There's a lot of false teachers out there, too. Many of them know a lot of Bible verses and they can rattle them off. Um, but we need to be careful. And, and in fact, there's even some good ones, some that I've heard recently I read some tweet from a guy who's very gifted and I won't go into it and I thought this is ridiculous it's illogical it's unbiblical whatever we we just have to have discernment Um, but what's the temptation here it's an appeal to his pride in many ways this is sort of the the test of the pride of life Um, Jesus is feeling lonely and isolated and weak and I, I think it would be very easy for him to say, what am I doing here? I'm humbled. I'm, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh, obviously. But uh, yeah, I'm going to show you. I'm going to throw myself off. I, I believe that Scripture is true. I'm going to show the world. I'm going to declare myself. Look who I am. Um, but again, Jesus' response is humility, and he resists the temptation. And instead he says... In verse 7, Jesus' response to Satan is, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he sees the Scripture as being misapplied, and he applies the other overarching Scripture that says, You know what? We don't put God to the test. That's not, that's not my point. That's not why I've called. He knew what his mission was. He knew what his purpose was. 
Uh, and this was not it. And he was being tempted to sort of thwart the whole mission and to usurp the whole mission. Um, so the verse that Jesus quotes is again from Deuteronomy. says very plainly, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not. And so then immediately you may say, What is Massah? Or again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Somebody can correct me if it's not that. Um, but you can go back to Exodus to find that. The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Interesting that it's a similar issue. Jesus is hungry. They're thirsty. They're grumbling and complaining against Moses and said, Yeah, you've brought us out to kill us. Uh, and then at the end, or further on in that chapter, Exodus 17, 7, he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So they're complaining. They're grumbling. They're sort of uh, doubting God's goodness, maybe. They're, they're certainly not trusting Him, um, and perhaps even slandering Him, suggesting He's not among them after all that He's done, all the, the plagues, the parting the Red Sea and so forth. And they're, again, sort of slandering God, but at least doubting Him. Um, but suffice it to say, Jesus knew God's will here, and by contrast, He trusted God and submitted to the Father and His will. Uh, it, it harkens back sort of to the, you know, Satan's first temptation in the garden. Is, you know, is basically, did God really say that? Is God really good? Sort of questioning God's goodness. And um, so he's sort of, it's sort of a dual thing. You say that you're the son of God. Is God good? Prove it. Prove that God's word is true. And Jesus says, no, I don't, I don't put him to the test. I trust him. It's not my role to usurp. Uh, it's my role to submit. And we see that, obviously, in Gethsemane, where he submits to the Father's will. But here as well, he resists the temptation of uh, pride and submits instead and says, we don't put the Lord to the test. God's preeminent. The Father's preeminent. Jesus will reign someday, but he comes first as a suffering servant. So next, verse 8, back in the text, Jesus said to him, whoops, sorry, and again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. So, uh, again, how he's led there, it doesn't describe, except that he is taken there, and Satan took him there to a high mountain. Interesting, all the, the bad things that happen on high mountains. Uh, lots of idol worship happens on high mountains in the Old Testament, if you've been through that. Interesting. But he says, I'm going to give you everything. This is sort of the lust of the eyes, this position, this fame. Um, look and see, and I'm going to give it all to you. Um, just one catch, you've got to fall down and worship me. And that's the temptation. And, and yet here, Jesus was destined for all this. I mean, he is going to reign. Uh, he is going to be Lord over all. And he, ri he rightly deserved all the kingdoms and all the glory. But that's not the means that God prescribed. Uh, and it's sort of a reminder that the ends don't justify the means. Um, in some ways, this seems like the, the easiest temptation, I guess. Maybe that's probably the wrong way to say it. Um, but, but you would think, oh man, he wants me to worship him? This is Satan and he wants me to worship him? Yeah, I better not do that. I mean, that, that should be sort of, Some of the others are a little subtle. This one seems to be like a red light, red flag, whatever. I mean, glaring. And yet it did cause me to pause and think, um, how often do we maybe do that? Perhaps unwittingly, but we give worship to something else or someone else, which is ultimately uh, Satan, that we see our position that we want, whatever it may be, and the ends justify the means, and we sort of fudge over things, and, and either we're, it's idolatry of the self or it's idolatry of something else. Um, and so even though it's the most obvious, in some ways it was the biggest reward. You can have all of this. Look at all this glory. Um, 
but thankfully, uh, Jesus falls back on, on the ultimate truth. Uh, and there in verse 10, he says, and Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, and again, just powerful. Um, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Powerful, and yet, um, how often do we maybe serve other things? You know, wasn't there an old Bob Dylan song? I've, I, that's before my time, but you're going to serve somebody or something like that. I've, I've, I've heard that before. Um, and, we, and we do. I mean, even though we know this word, um, do we give worship to others? Do we serve others? And yet Jesus uh, rightly applied that truth. Um, so we did look at, did we look at Deuteronomy 6.13? I don't remember if we saw that slide, but we'll catch up with the slides when that comes back. Um, so the devil leaves, the angels minister to him, and I can't even imagine, you know, again, the physical exhaustion, the, the spiritual battle that he's just been through, uh, and he was in need and much deserving of that ministering. And I do think, you know, that it tells us in, in other places in the New Testament that the angels are ministering spirits, and they do minister, and, and so there's even some hope in that. But Jesus resists. He, he resists the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the big three that we see in 1 John that lead us astray. Uh, and practically, I'll just summarize what we saw, what we saw Jesus do. He was led by the Spirit. He fasts and prays. He's discerning because he knows the Word and obviously had been prepared. He'd been digesting Deuteronomy and no doubt other uh, Scripture. He's humble. I mean, he approaches all these humbly with humility. He surrendered to God's will. He trusted God to provide his needs, that the Heavenly Father knows you need these things, you know, but seek him first. And he doesn't even give in to feelings or desires, but he obeys. Um, even legitimate feelings, feelings of hunger. Again, not illegitimate, God-given, um, but he obeys instead. He believes God and takes him at his word. Um, so, uh, I did have another quote that I was going to show you, but we will get to that if we can. It was a good quote along the lines by somebody named Ian Dugid. Dugid? So he's got a good first name, although he spells it wrong. And for those Grove Cityers out there, he used to teach at Grove City. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was. Um, but basically, he says, Jesus was prepared because Jesus was belted with the word of truth. Um, he had prepared. Uh, that's the source of his resistance. He was belted with the word of truth. And we see Jesus' example in this, and then it makes me think, how much have we resisted? How much do we resist? Um, and it brought to mind Hebrews 12, verse 4, where the writer of Hebrews tells us, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Seems sort of obvious. I think that would apply to all of us. If you have, I would like to talk to you after service. That would be interesting to hear your story. Uh, but I would hazard to guess for most of us, we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, to the point of shedding our own blood. Um, and Jesus' experience is often not ours. Again, one of the, one of the quotes that I was going to point out is that we, uh, oh, hey, here we go. Okay. So here's the first one. Jesus had belted on the word of truth ahead of time. So when Satan assaulted him with his lies, he found Jesus thoroughly equipped to prepare his assault. So there's, there's sort of a, um, an example there for us. Also telling. And there's Hebrews 12.4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Um, and then here's the contrast. That is so different from us, both having girded and having resisted. Um, Satan simply has to show us something attractive and we go after it, even when we know it to be contrary to God's Word. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all the things that feed our appetites, our desires, our sense of self-importance, seduce us easily away from the truth and into sin. And there's a reference to 1 John where it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's often our experience. Um, and so not only have we not resisted to the point of shedding blood 
Um, but we probably, I'm safe to assume, we haven't engaged in a 40-day fast in the wilderness. But again, Jesus did both. Um, he did it. And then this is sort of the conclusion, though, from this book, The Whole Armor of God. We are not equipped with a solid belt of truth, faithfully appropriating the word of truth like he did. But Jesus was in our place. So Jesus succeeded where we have and where we continue to fail. Jesus fasted. Jesus resisted. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus defeated temptation. He submitted to the Father's will. In righteousness shed his blood for our sin, not his. Striving against sin to forgive us our sin and to free us from it. And to even give us the power over it. So, in many ways, I feel like Matthew 4 is as powerful as much for what it doesn't say as what it does say. We, we read it. It's pretty short. Again, there's a lot of details that I sort, we sort of thought about that uh, wonder, what does that tell us? But, again, this is in the introduction. Jesus is not addressing his disciples. He's not addressing the multitude. He's not addressing the Pharisees. He's not even with the woman at the well or some other lost soul. He's out on his own experiencing this temptation. This is to show us Jesus. He's not lecturing. He's not giving a class on resisting temptation. Um, he hasn't even called his disciples yet. We see that in the end of the chapter, chapter 4, where he goes and calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. Um, and so this is, again, part of the introduction where Matthew, he's given us genealogy, he's told us about Jesus' birth, he's told us about his baptism, and then he tells us about his temptation. And to me, this is sort of like Matthew's Ann Wilson, let me tell you about my Jesus point, where he's saying, look at what he did. Look at the temptation that he faced and that he withstood. Um, so where would that leave us? Where does that leave us? What is, so what is, the, what is the point of this? Obviously, we've gleaned a lot of good practical helps by his example and truths. Um, and we've, I think we've safely concluded that we're not to be, it's not calling us to be engaged in a 40-day fast. Not only would that be impractical to fast for 40 days every time we're going to face temptation, because we don't know when we're going to face temptation, but also dangerous. Um, and probably not possible. Um, so, you know, I, I think back to um, sort of the question, what would Jesus do, right? That's, that's what a lot of people have applied. You see the wristbands, you see the t-shirts, not a bad thing. Sort of the intent of the what would Jesus do that came back, came a, a number of years back, was to think about and consider when you're faced with a decision, when you're faced with a temptation or something like that, to consider what would Jesus do, right? Um, and I'm not being critical of it. It's probably a good thing. If you've got a wristband, and I know people that do, that's good. It's a good reminder to keep that uh, in mind. But just recognize it comes up short um, because Jesus didn't come to just show us the way. He came to be the way. He's the only way. He is the way and the truth and the life. He didn't just come to give us an example and an instruction manual, though He is our ultimate and preeminent example. And the Bible is filled with wisdom and instruction that we should read and digest and apply. But the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. It's not a self-help book. Um, and I do want to overcome temptation, and I do want to walk in integrity, and I do want to follow Him. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But apart from Christ, knowing all the Scriptures, Satan knows all the Scriptures, or a lot of them, it's not going to help me resist temptation apart from Christ. Uh, in fact, it's futile. In fact, it can lead you to become a Pharisee, right? And clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside is filled with dead men's bones, I think of, if you, again, if you've been doing the reading with us, Matthew 19, we see the rich young ruler today, if you've read it or if you will, and he comes and he says, I've followed the law, I've done all those things, what do I need to do? And uh, Jesus put his finger on it. I mean, probably he hadn't followed the law, I think it's safe to assume, but he doesn't come with humility, does he? He comes and says, yeah, I've done all those things, but, but now what do I need? 
kind of want to be part of your group. And Jesus lays his finger on it, and he goes away disappointed because he doesn't like the response, because he doesn't want to submit. And so um, he clung to his wealth and his pride and his idolatry, and he left. And he missed Jesus, and he didn't resist. And uh, Jesus still asks, as we've asked recently, will you leave me too? Or do we respond like Peter, hopefully, and say, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Um, But the point of this passage and the point of this entire book is to show us Christ. Um, And so the first and foremost question we should ask is, what does this teach me about Christ? Because I think I can come to it, and maybe all of us can come to it, and the first question we ask is, okay, what do I need to do? Uh, let's see, I need to memorize Deuteronomy, obviously. There's at least chapter 6 of Deuteronomy for sure. And we sort of excuse the fast maybe. Maybe we realize that's not realistic. But we might say, well, I'm going to need to fast. Uh, I'm going to need to. And instead of saying, first and foremost, what does this teach me about Christ? What does this show me about him? And the question, not so much first and foremost, what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? Um, And that's what Matthew seems to be saying. Look at what Jesus did. He was 40 days fasting on the point of starvation, uh, tempted by Satan himself, and he was presented the kingdoms of the world and all these other temptations, and he resisted, and he won, and he overcame Let me tell you about my Jesus, right? Um, Yes, he is a powerful example, and we've gleaned a lot of truths that we should apply. We need to stay in the Word and all that. But without him, we'll never get there on our own. And what sort of hope would it be if this were the instruction, if this were the formula? Okay, here's the formula. Everybody get on a plane, go to the Judean wilderness, fast 40 days and 40 nights, be led up to the temple, be led out to a high mountain, I mean, there's no hope in that at all. I mean, we, we can't even do that. Memorize Deuteronomy. Um, and again, not that we, we need to hide the word in our heart, like David said, that we would not sin against him. But that is not helpful if it's a formula. Uh, and we could obey. No temptations overtaken us except that which is common to man. But it's God who is faithful, not us. It's he who provides a way of escape, not us. Uh, He is faithful. Sadly, I am not. But if the point is to show us not uh, what we should do, but what Jesus did and what only he could do, and that he is able to impute his righteousness to us, then this is very good news. Then we can look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, and hope with great hope. And I'll read verse 17 and 18 of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that is, he's fully man, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Wow, (laughs) that's good news. Because, see, by the time my eyes are opened to see that there is a battle, I've already got sinful human nature, and I've already got a long list of failures. Um, so i got a problem if this is a formula. I'm already two steps behind or more. But if we're imputed Christ's righteousness, and he makes the propitiation, and he forgives and pays the penalty for all the times I've failed before, and then he himself overcame temptation, then he is able to come to the aid. Then he can help me. He can help those who are tempted. So not only can he forgive the past, but he can help me going forward. And so, yes, we need to study the word, and we need to desire to know and draw near to Jesus. Um, But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that brings those things to our remembrance. Here's Charles Spurgeon. The Spirit of God brings to our minds the precepts and doctrines of truth and applies them with power. So we need the power because we can know them, but unless they're applied with with power, they're futile. Again, Satan knows Scripture. It's not helping him resist temptation. These are heard in the ear 
and being received in the heart, they will work in us to will and to do God's good pleasure. The truth is the sanctifier, and if we do not hear or read the truth, we shall not grow in sanctification. So we definitely need to stay in the Word, but we need the Holy Spirit at work. And guess what? We have to receive it first. We can hear Him in the ear, but it has to be received in the heart first. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Before you're saved, you can read this all day long and you're not going to receive the word. You can memorize it. But until God opens your heart, until you're born again, then we can't receive it. And we can't be born again unless Jesus conquers and defeats temptation and finishes his race uh, sinless, which is what we see in Matthew chapter 4. And then as it says in 2 Thessalonians, just to emphasize the Lord is faithful, he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. It's His protection. It's His work. He strengthens us. He protects us. Um, He wore the armor of God first, and He enables it. Every piece of the armor is sourced by Him. Um, And again, we do need to hide the Word in our heart. It, It reminded me, too, sort of of this trying to walk in these things without being truly there, like the seven sons of Siva, right? Wasn't, weren't they the ones that wanted to purchase the, the Holy Spirit? And, and they approach um, some demons, and the demons say, yeah, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul, but who are you? I mean, we have to be in Christ first before uh, there's any hope of, of overcoming temptation. And even in James, this is a familiar verse, and, and uh, it says this, but a greater grace... Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see, again, Christ's example of humility, even in resisting. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I mean... There's the context of of defeating and resisting Satan and defeating temptation. Humble yourself as Jesus did. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But if you've never submitted your life to God, resisting the devil, one, you're probably not going to do it. But two, it's largely largely futile. Um, and, And we can see how this works itself out. Again, you can look at the history of Israel, the Israelites, where they were submitted to God Uh, And when they weren't, and you can see the way the culture went, you can see our culture where there's a greater and lesser submission to God. Is there a greater or lesser resistance of Satan? I think there's a a correlation. So do we approach it uh, with the sense that I think I got this under control? I know the scripture. I've read that. Um, That we sort of have passed the need for a high priest. We've sort of bypassed that. We've graduated to the next Sort of like the Pharisees, ah, you know what? We have Abraham for our father. We know the scriptures. Or do we approach it with humility and say and recognize again, apart from Christ, I can do nothing? Do we say, but for the grace of God, go I there? Um, do, I say, do we say, I know my heart. I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And as a result, we stay in the word and we draw near to him. Uh, sort of that humble response. And I wrote this down. Is this our theme song? I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. It's my source. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. That's how we defeat temptation. That's how we resist They don't lose their power in our presence. They lose their power when we're near Christ, when we draw near to Him, and His Word is in our hearts, and His Spirit is at work. So, I'm bringing this to a close, um, and hopefully the Lord has has spoken to us in some fashion, Uh, but I, I do need to address, again, Jesus became righteousness for us, but if you've never humbled yourself and submitted to God, and requested him to forgive your sins, 
then you're, you're not even in the first step. You're not even received His righteousness. There's no way you can resist temptation. Call upon Him. Seek His face. Confess that He's Lord. Believe that God raised Him from the dead. Um, and you'll be saved. And if that is you, I know these are familiar faces and it's probably not any of you, but maybe it's somebody watching online. Contact us. Talk to us. Any of us would love to talk to you about that. But for those of you who are saved, gaze freshly at our holy and powerful Savior. Here's another quote, final quote, I think, from Ian Dugid. The more we grasp the truth of Christ's righteousness in our place, the more this truth will strengthen us in turn against Satan's lies. If the God of the universe has chosen and called us in Christ and given us a glorious inheritance in Him, that is surely better than whatever tawdry bobble Satan places under our nose. Just knowing and receiving the righteousness of Christ and knowing this truth, that's help in and of itself against temptation. It puts it in context. That's how Jesus can say, I don't need to turn these stones into bread because I live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And He is faithful, and He is, gives greater grace, and we never outgrow this or move on. We must walk humbly, because it is He who is faithful. Again, I made reference to this verse earlier. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We cling to that promise. Hebrews 2.18 that I also made reference to earlier. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And not only is he able, but he's willing and desiring and wants us to walk in that freedom. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for what you did and just the ability to just consider it what nobody else has ever done in the history of the world, that you came and were tempted directly by Satan and resisted in every point. Lord, that no one has ever done it since. And yet you enable us, you empower us, you desire that we could walk in the manner that you walked, and you impute your righteousness, Lord. And even when we fall and we stumble, you forgive us when we confess our sin. God, I just want to thank you for that. And even though this was probably just uh, familiar territory for a lot of us, may it be fresh in our hearts. May we just see you more and just sense your nearness in this and just, again, gaze on you in awe and wonder. And we do thank you. Lord, we just, again, pray that your word would not return void, that you would accomplish what you intend for each person who's heard that if there's any error and any misstatements, Lord, you'd, you'd cause those to fall to the ground and only what is true to remain, that the chaff would be chased away and only the true would remain. And we again just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together as we end in worship. I need